Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as I said earlier during the confession, my standard Sunday procedure, as I've mentioned many times, is I get up at 4 a.m., trick my body into thinking that it's later than it actually is. Not a morning person in the slightest. Uh, The idea is that I'll be well-rested, so you fall asleep at like 9 o'clock, but then sometimes, as I mentioned, um, as was the case last night, as I'm standing out of my back porch wearing duck boots and a raincoat, holding a kitchen spoon, trying to clear leaf debris off of a French drain, I thought I'm not going to get a ton of sleep tonight, would be my guess, watching those, that water rise up. Uh, but it occurred to me, as you know, just the monstrous deluge that we were in, I'm preaching on baptism today. It seems appropriate in some regard. Uh, So I wanted to kind of add this section, because I think what's interesting is within the Lutheran church, uh, we we use the baptismal font, we do a little sprinkling, right? The little kid, they put on their their fancy little white gown, and it's a whole thing, right? It's a very nice, very theologically accurate ceremony. But I think we lose some of the power by doing it that way. Because really, in many ways, baptism is... It's a very action-oriented thing. It's almost violent in that Martin Luther himself calls it the drowning of sin. And we recognize from our epistle reading that that in baptism, we die to sin. It's something that that is powerful. It's something that is in many ways destructive in that it destroys what we call the old Adam, the sinful self that we inherit from our original ancestors, Adam and Eve, right? And so in baptism, we are cleansing that original sin out of us, and it is a destructive thing. Now, obviously here in Houston, we know the power of water and flood, and we know that from the destructive power of that water also gets a chance for rebirth and new life. As I sat there last night and saw the various plants that had died a couple weeks prior when it got cold rush towards my French drains, I thought, well, that will grow back eventually. Who knows what kind of seeds are getting spread around right now, and eventually, well, there'll be new life in the yard. And that's really what baptism is for us. It's an opportunity to be cleansed of our old self and to be born again through the Holy Spirit. Through God saying, this is one of my own, and us making a public declaration to the people around us. And it's with that concept of baptism in mind that we see our gospel reading today, and we see Jesus get baptized. But before we get into that, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us through the storms last night, and we thank you for the nice weather that we have outside now. So often that is the case. As we survive through the storms of this world, there's something nicer, better waiting on the other side, that rebirth, that new growth. Lord, I thank you for the chance to share your message. Let it be your message. Move me out of the way. This isn't about Tyler. This is about you. And I submit myself to your Holy Spirit, and I pray that we would all be willing to do the same. Lord, we pray that your truth, that your love is known in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Again, special welcome to those of you joining online. Uh, In the earlier service, uh, former President Mark Mayfield said uh, you can exercise your evangelical skills by hitting like and share. That makes life a lot easier uh, than a lot of other evangelical opportunities. But um, 
when it comes to the way we do church, I think that there is a little bit of a flaw in that you guys come here, you know, once a week, you come here for an hour or so on Sunday, and then you go about your life, and you do things, and you, you get distracted by stuff, and then you come back the next week, right? And it's more akin to watching a TV show than a movie. And the issue is when you watch a TV show, it's all kind of chunked up, right? You're like, oh, this was the story last week, and okay, what happened there? Versus a movie, it's just kind of all one flowing thing. And so when it comes to our gospel reading today, it's like, oh, today we're covering the baptism of Jesus, right? But we lose sight of how it kind of flowed into this. What happened? What prepared this moment, right? And so kind of the, as we see in any good long-staring TV show previously on the gospel of Jesus, uh, we had Christmas, right? We had that whole thing. You all know the story to Christmas. And then after that, the, the wise men came a number of months later. And then there was the whole Herod incident where Herod did horrible atrocities, killing children. And so Jesus and his family had to run to Egypt and then they returned. Now, in one of the gospels, we also have the account of when Jesus was a young boy that he went to the temple, was left behind, etc. right? But other than that, this is the first time we pick up Jesus's story again. We go from Christmas to his baptism. And at this point, he's roughly 30 years old. And you have to kind of wonder, did Mary and Joseph throughout those 30 years be like, huh, kind of figured he'd do more. <laughs> you know, the whole like immaculate conception. No, that's what I'm calling it. Immaculate. Isn't that cool? It's going to catch on. Immaculate conception. Um, I kind of figured like he'd do... <laughs> I mean, he's a carpenter. He's a good carpenter. Joseph, you taught him to be a good carpenter. But like, I don't know. I just kind of thought that he'd do more if he's supposed to be the son of God, right? Well, he gets to 30, and we get to this, this baptism. And I think it's powerful to look at how God prepared Jesus and prepared the culture for this moment. Because this is truly a big moment. See, for Jesus, he is somebody who, he's from Nazareth. And for us, like we hear Nazareth, we don't know a ton of the cities. Nazareth, Jerusalem, we, okay, sure. But Nazareth was unremarkable. It was the kind of place that people just kind of overlooked. It was Columbus, Ohio, right? There's nobody here from Columbus, Ohio, right? Are, are you really? Oh, no! Uh, it's like Cleveland, Ohio. Anybody from Cleveland? No? Okay, we're good. Whew. Sorry, Columbus is a great place, I'm sure. <sighs> Dodged a bullet on that one. Uh, so... Cleveland, Ohio. Everybody looks at Cleveland like, yeah, okay, Cleveland, sure. It's like one of those flyover places. You don't really, nobody's like looking to vacation in Cleveland, I would imagine, right? And that's how Nazareth was. Nazareth was overlooked. In fact, they had a phrase that they use rather frequently called, what good can come from Nazareth, right? We see that later on in the Gospels and then Acts. Uh, what good can come from Nazareth? And the question really is, this is a place uh, that's unremarkable. It would make sense if Jesus was from Jerusalem, this is the seat of the temple. This is where the religious cult was, to use a pretty blatant term. That, like, that's where it was all happening. It would make sense if Jesus even was like from Cairo and Egypt. And all. No, no, Jesus is from this small, little, sleepy Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? Perhaps you find yourself in some ways connecting to that, this idea of being overlooked, of being obscure, Right? Because for Jesus, that's what he is. He, for this first 30 years of his life, he's, he's obscure. Nobody really is making note of what he's doing during this time. And isn't that interesting? Like Jesus, the, the most important, the most famous person that's ever walked on the face of this planet, 
was obscure and unknown for the first 30 years of his life. In this day and age where Time Magazine does the most powerful 30 people under 30, etc., and by the time you get to 30, you're basically middle-aged and all this kind of thing, like, can you imagine Jesus makes it to 30 with only the one story of being left behind by his parents? Why do you think that you have to be renowned by 30, by 50, by 70? It's okay to sometimes be in obscurity. Maybe you feel like you're in obscurity right now. You're, you're looking and saying, what good can come from Nazareth? What good can come from singleness? What good can come from illness? What good can come from depression? What good can come from being unemployed? What good can come from being a widow? What good can come from the retirement home? What good can come from my life? And what Jesus teaches, what God teaches, is from those obscure places, from the Nazareth of the world, he raises up the most incredible things, and he does it on his time frame. Jesus comes from the obscure, the unknown, the forgotten about, and the overlooked. And if you're feeling that way, take heart because God sees you. God knows you. God cares about you. And so Jesus hits 30, and suddenly he has this public moment. He finds himself out at the Jordan River with John the Baptist. Now, this John the Baptist, quite a character, right? We know he wore some strange clothes. He had a bug diet, right? It's all the rage these days. But back then, looked down on. Um, living out in the wilderness. And yet, he had people coming to see him. The dude was a preacher. He could preach. In fact, one time, he's preaching, right? He, he calls his crowd. Can you imagine this? This is not like syrupy, sweet cotton candy stuff. He looks at them and he says, who called you out here, you den of vipers? If I started saying that kind of stuff to y'all, you guys would leave. I'd just be me here, right? But that's what he says. He says, you den of vipers, you terrible people. What are you doing here? He's up there going, get baptized, you snake. Get baptized, you snake. And then one day he goes, baptize, you savior of the world. Okay, cool. You're here, all right. And this whole time he'd been preaching about the one who was yet to come, and suddenly there he was. Jesus is there to be baptized. Now, the question is, if we just discussed how baptism is the cleansing of sin, the washing away of our sinful self and, and this new birth, why was Jesus there? Right, if Jesus was perfect, if Jesus had lived with no sin in his life, why was he there? That's what John the Baptist was wondering. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on. You should be baptized. I've been, I've been preaching to all these vipers here about how you're going to be this amazing thing. Now you're submitting yourself to me. No, no, no. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says it doesn't have to make sense because it's what is written and it's what is going to happen. See, Humans get baptized, and Jesus was fully human. And he said to make things right, to do things the right way, this is what's going to happen. See, sometimes we get caught up in that very same question of this, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. I don't want to do this because it doesn't make sense. I need to see logically why this has to happen before I do this thing. I need to see why I need to make this move. I need to see why I need to leave this job. I need to see why I need to step up and be a better person. I want to see why I need to give this money. I need to see why I need to step up and, and join a small group. I need to see why I have this tough conversation with somebody. But Jesus says, no, no, it doesn't matter what doesn't make sense. This is the right way to do it. Just trust me. 
by asking the question, does this make sense and I'll only do this when it does, that's not faith. That's not trust. And he calls us to trust. He calls us to faith. That's what he is modeling. Now, the other reason that Jesus comes to be baptized is it was for a word that I said earlier in the service, obedience. Obedience is not a word we like in our modern times. Obedience is not a word we like in this country, in this state. We are a people of revolution. We are a people of rebellion. No, 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 no. don't tell me what to do. That's so deep within us. But if we're looking at Jesus, God himself in flesh, and he is modeling for us obedience, perhaps we should rethink that rebellious nature within us. Perhaps we should rethink the concept of obedience, at least to God, not necessarily to man, but to God. What does it look like to be more obedient, to follow God's way, to follow God's will more in our life? That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Father, this is what you say to do, so here I am, let's do it. And so finally, John the Baptist says, if you say so, and he puts him in the water. And as Jesus is coming up, something happens. It says the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And a voice thunders out. We assume this to be God the Father because he says, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. This is an incredible moment. Probably one of the most impactful moments in the history of this planet. This is a family reunion right here, right? This is all three members of the Trinity together in the same place at the same time. And they chose it to be in the presence of a carpenter, a bug eater, and a dirty, nasty river. God uses the obscure to do incredible things. And what does God say to Jesus? He says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus does a lot of amazing things throughout his ministry, right? He's known for miracles. He's known for performing. He's known for having a mass following. But as of this moment, he ain't done any of them. As of this moment, none of those miracles that we see in the Gospels have been performed. Not a single blind eye has been opened. Not a single leprous spot removed. Not a single life changed through miracle, at least that we see recorded here. In fact, what we see where he says, let this be done for the fulfillment of all righteousness, those are the first words of Jesus in this Gospel, the first time he speaks. And I think it's so powerful that God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased before Jesus accomplishes all that. Before Jesus does the incredible things. Because see, we live in a society that says, what have you done? What have you accomplished? What's your resume? What's your biography? How many, how many things have you done? How impressive are you? What have you done is the measure of who you are. And sometimes that's a negative. What you have done, you carry it around like a ball and chain because it's your reputation and it's tarred by something in your past. But God doesn't care what you've done. God doesn't care about your accomplishments. He cares about your relationship. He cares about who you are and who he made you to be. He looks at Jesus and he says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. He looks at you and doesn't say, what have you done? What are you going to do? 
What are your accomplishments? What's your resume? What does your LinkedIn look like? No, he looks at you and says, you are my beloved child. And I love you steadfastly, unconditionally. Nothing will change that. God doesn't care what you've done. God doesn't care what you've accomplished. God cares that you are his beloved child. Those of you who have been baptized, you know, you know that in those waters, in that ordinary everyday sink water, God says, this is part of my family. If you haven't been baptized, come talk to me. We can make it happen. We've got a baptismal font right there. It doesn't have to be a whole big thing. And yet it is the biggest thing. See, God looks at you and says, you are my beloved child. Just as he proclaims it to Jesus, he proclaims it to you. It's not about what you've done. It's about who you are. But there's something else that I want to draw your attention to here. And I've missed it most of the times that I've read through this. And yet this time it stood out to me. It says that Jesus rose up out of the water. And then what happened? The spirit descended like a dove, right? What does a dove represent? What What does that mean? Peace, good. And the earlier service that said Holy Spirit, and I said, oh, good. Clearly you guys go to church, but I'm going to assume that when Memorial City put a dove up on a lamppost at Christmas time, they didn't think, well, there's a nice picture of the Holy Spirit. No, it means peace. Like across the world, dove is the symbol of peace. And so this idea that after Jesus is raising up out of the water, after the baptism is done, after he has performed the obedience, peace is upon him. See, sometimes we want it so badly to be the other way around. God calls us to do something. We say, I gotta have a peace about it. I, I, gotta, I gotta feel good about this. God, you're asking me to do this surgery and I, I gotta feel good about it. I gotta, gotta research everything beforehand. You're asking me to go to this doctor's office. I gotta feel good about it. I'm nervous about it. Give me peace, Lord. You're asking me to reach out to somebody that I haven't talked to in a long time. I gotta feel good about it. I gotta have peace. Sometimes peace comes after the obedience. Sometimes we do something, we go to the doctor, they test us, and they say, well, here's the issue. And then you go, well, at least now I know. And there's a peace that can come. Sometimes the peace comes after obedience. And you're sitting here, because we're all rebellious, sinful people, we're going, ah, I don't like this obedience talk, Pastor Tyler. This sounds pretty rules-oriented. Remember, who we're following is the one who made it all the one who designed this world and knows the way that it's supposed to go. He wrote the instruction manual. And we're to follow him, to obey him, to listen when God calls us. To not say, well, God, first you have to show yourself in this way. You have to give me a sign in this way. I have to have a sense of peace about me. No, God sometimes gives us peace after the obedience. There's another time that Jesus uh, submits himself, that he obeys in a very dramatic way. He's in the garden, and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thine. Yet not about me, but you, Lord. I'm obeying my Father in this moment. By obeying, he brings peace to us all. By obeying and walking from that garden to Golgotha, we get to have peace. That peace comes after his obedience. And so may we have the strength and the courage to listen to our God, to obey, to follow the way that he has set out for us. May we have the peace 
that comes with knowing that we are beloved children, that we've been set free from the pain, from the struggle, from, from the hurts and the lies of this world that tells us, no, no, it's about your accomplishments. May we have the courage to obey, not the people of this world, not the, the princes and the voices and the talking heads on the TV, but instead to obey our Lord who tells us to love. Just as he loves us, we are to love the people in our midst. May you, may we have peace knowing that we are beloved children of God, set aside and made to be holy. May that peace be upon us through Jesus Christ. Amen.